Section 3 of Institutes of the Christian Religion Book 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole Institutes of the Christian Religion Book 4 by John Calvin Translated by Henry Beveridge Chapter 1 Part 2 6. Moreover, as at this time there is a great dispute as to the efficacy of the ministry, some extravagantly overrating its dignity, and others erroneously maintaining that what is peculiar to the Spirit of God is transferred to mortal man, when we suppose that ministers and teachers penetrate to the mind and heart so as to correct the blindness of the one and the hardness of the other, it is necessary to place this controversy on its proper footing. The arguments on both sides will be disposed of without trouble by distinctly attending to the passages in which God, the author of preaching, connects his spirit with it and then promises a beneficial result, or, on the other hand, to the passages in which God, separating himself from external means, claims for himself alone both the commencement and the whole course of faith. The office of the second Elias was, as Malachi declares, to, quote, turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, unquote, Malachi 4.6. Christ declares that he sent the apostles to produce fruit from his labors, John 15.16. What this fruit is, Peter briefly defines when he says that we are begotten again of incorruptible seed, 1 Peter 1.23. Hence Paul glories that by means of the gospel he had begotten the Corinthians, who were the seals of his apostleship, 1 Corinthians 4.15. Moreover, that his was not a ministry of the letter, which only sounded in the ear, but that the effectual agency of the Spirit was given to him, in order that his gospel might not be in vain. 1 Corinthians 9.2, 2 2 Corinthians 3.6. In this sense, he elsewhere declares that his gospel was not in word, but in power, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He also affirms that the Galatians received the Spirit by the hearing of faith, Galatians 3.2. In short, in several passages, he not only makes himself a fellow worker with God, but attributes to himself the province of bestowing salvation. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9 All these things he certainly never uttered with the view of attributing to himself one iota apart from God. As he elsewhere briefly explains, quote, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Unquote. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Again, in another place, quote, He that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Unquote. Galatians 2.8 
and that he allows no more to ministers, is obvious from other passages, quote, So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 7 Again, quote, I laboured more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15.10 And it is indeed necessary to keep these sentences in view, since God, in ascribing to himself the illumination of the mind and renewal of the heart, reminds us that it is sacrilege for man to claim any part of either to himself. Still, everyone who listens with docility to the ministers whom God appoints will know by the beneficial result that for good reason God is pleased with this method of teaching, and for good reason has laid believers under this modest yoke. 7. The judgment, which ought to be formed concerning the visible church, which comes under our observation, must, I think, be sufficiently clear from what has been said. I have observed that the Scriptures speak of the church in two ways. Sometimes when they speak of the church, they mean the church as it really is before God, the church into which none are admitted but those who by the gift of adoption are sons of God, and by the sanctification of the Spirit, true members of Christ. In this case, it not only comprehends the saints who dwell on the earth, but all the elect who have existed from the beginning of the world. Often, too, by the name of church is designated the whole body of mankind scattered throughout the world who profess to worship one God and Christ, who by baptism are initiated into the faith, by partaking of the Lord's Supper profess unity in true doctrine and charity, agree in holding the word of the Lord, and observe the ministry which Christ has appointed for the preaching of it. In this church there is a very large mixture of hypocrites, who have nothing of Christ but the name and outward appearance, of ambitious, avaricious, envious, evil-speaking men, some also of impure lives, who are tolerated for a time either because their guilt cannot be legally established, or because due strictness of discipline is not always observed. Hence, as it is necessary to believe the invisible church, which is manifest to the eye of God only, so we are also enjoined to regard this church, which is so called with reference to man, and to cultivate its communion. 8. Accordingly, inasmuch as it was of importance to us to recognize it, the Lord has distinguished it by certain marks, and as it were, symbols. It is indeed the special prerogative of God to know those who are his, as Paul declares in the passage already quoted, 2 Timothy 2.19. And doubtless it has been so provided as a check on human rashness, the experience of every day reminding us how far his secret judgments surpass our apprehension. For even those who seemed most abandoned, and who had been completely despaired of, are by his goodness recalled to life, while those who seemed most stable often fall. Hence, as Augustine says, quote, in regard to the secret predestination of God, 
there are very many sheep without and very many wolves within. Unquote. For he knows and has his mark on those who know neither him nor themselves. Of those again who openly bear his badge, his eyes alone see who of them are unfeignedly holy, and will persevere even to the end, which alone is the completion of salvation. On the other hand, foreseeing that it was in some degree expedient for us to know who were to be regarded by us as his sons, he has in this matter accommodated himself to our capacity. But as here full certainty was not necessary, he has in its place substituted the judgment of charity, by which we acknowledge all as members of the church, who by confession of faith, regularity of conduct, and participation in the sacraments, unite with us in acknowledging the same God and Christ. The knowledge of his body, inasmuch as he knew it to be more necessary for our salvation, he has made known to us by surer marks. 9. Hence the form of the church appears, and stands forth conspicuous to our view. Wherever we see the word of God sincerely preached and heard, wherever we see the sacraments administered according to the institution of Christ, there we cannot have any doubt that the church of God has some existence, since his promise cannot fail, quote, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, unquote, Matthew 18.20. But, that we may have a clear summary of this subject, we must proceed by the following steps. The church universal is the multitude collected out of all nations, who, though dispersed and far distant from each other, agree in one truth of divine doctrine, and are bound together by the tie of a common religion. In this way, it comprehends single churches, which exist in different towns and villages, according to the wants of human society, so that each of them justly obtains the name and authority of the church. And also comprehends single individuals who by a religious profession are accounted to belong to such churches, although they are in fact aliens from the church, but have not been cut off by a public decision. There is, however, a slight difference in the mode of judging of individuals and of churches, for it may happen in practice that those whom we deem not altogether worthy of the fellowship of believers we yet ought to treat as brethren and regard as believers on account of the common consent of the church in tolerating and bearing with them in the body of Christ. Such persons we do not approve by our suffrage as members of the church, but we leave them the place which they hold among the people of God until they are legitimately deprived of it. With regard to the general body we must feel differently. If they have the ministry of the word and honour the administration of the sacraments, they are undoubtedly entitled to be ranked with the church, because it is certain that these things are not without a beneficial result. Thus, we both maintain the church universal in its unity, which malignant minds have always been eager to dissever, and deny not due authority to lawful assemblies distributed as circumstances require. 10. 
we have said that the symbols by which the church is discerned are the preaching of the word and the observance of the sacraments, for these cannot anywhere exist without producing fruit and prospering by the blessing of God. I say not that wherever the word is preached fruit immediately appears, but that in every place where it is received and has a fixed abode, it uniformly displays its efficacy. Be this as it may, when the preaching of the gospel is reverently heard and the sacraments are not neglected, there for the time the face of the church appears without deception or ambiguity, and no man may, with impunity, spurn her authority, or reject her admonitions, or resist her counsels, or make sport of her censures, far less revolt from her, and violate her unity. See chapter 2, sections 1 and 10, and chapter 8, sections 12. For such is the value which the Lord sets on the communion of His church, that all who contumaciously alienate themselves from any Christian society in which the true ministry of His word and sacraments is maintained, He regards as deserters of religion. So highly does He recommend her authority, that when it is violated, he considers that his own authority is impaired, for there is no small weight in the designation given to her, quote, the house of God, unquote, quote, the pillar and ground of the truth, unquote, 1 Timothy 3.15. By these words Paul intimates that to prevent the truth from perishing in the world, the church is its faithful guardian because God has been pleased to preserve the pure preaching of his word by her instrumentality, and to exhibit himself to us as a parent while he feeds us with spiritual nourishment and provides whatever is conducive to our salvation. Moreover, no mean praise is conferred on the church when she is said to have been chosen and set apart by Christ as his spouse. Quote, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, unquote. Ephesians 5.27, as, quote, his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, unquote. Ephesians 1.23, whence it follows that revolt from the church is denial of God and Christ. Wherefore there is the more necessity to beware of a descent so iniquitous, foreseeing by it we aim as far as in us lies at the destruction of God's truth, we deserve to be crushed by the full thunder of his anger. No crime can be imagined more atrocious than that of sacrilegiously and perfidiously violating the sacred marriage which the only begotten Son of God has condescended to contract with us. 11. Wherefore, let these marks be carefully impressed upon our minds, and let us estimate them as in the sight of the Lord. There is nothing on which Satan is more intent than to destroy and efface one or both of them, at one time to delete and abolish these marks, and thereby destroy the true and genuine distinction of the church, at another to bring them into contempt, and so hurry us into open revolt from the church. To his wiles it was owing that for several ages the pure preaching of the word disappeared, and now with the same dishonest aim he labours to overthrow the ministry, 
which, however, Christ has so ordered in his church, that if it is removed, the whole edifice must fall. How perilous, then, nay, how fatal the temptation, when we even entertain a thought of separating ourselves from that assembly in which are beheld the signs and badges which the Lord has deemed sufficient to characterize his church. We see how great caution should be employed in both respects, that we may not be imposed upon by the name of church. Every congregation which claims the name must be brought to that test as to a Lydian's stone. If it holds the order instituted by the Lord, in word and sacraments there will be no deception. We may safely pay it the honor due to a church. On the other hand, if it exhibits itself without word and sacraments, we must in this case be no less careful to avoid the imposture than we were to shun pride and presumption in the other. 12. When we say that the pure ministry of the word and pure celebration of the sacraments is a fit pledge and earnest, so that we may safely recognize a church in every society in which both exist, our meaning is that we are never to discard it so long as these remain, though it may otherwise teem with numerous faults. Nay, even in the administration of the word and sacraments defect may creep in, which ought not to alienate us from its communion. For all the heads of true doctrine are not in the same position. Some are so necessary to be known that all must hold them to be fixed and undoubted as the proper essentials of religion. For instance, that God is one, that Christ is God, and the Son of God, that our salvation depends on the mercy of God, and the like. Others again, which are the subject of controversy among the churches, do not destroy the unity of the faith. For why should it be regarded as a ground of dissension between churches if one, without any spirit of contention or perverseness in dogmatizing, hold that the soul on quitting the body flies to heaven, and another, without venturing to speak positively as to the abode, holds it certain that it lives with the Lord. The words of the Apostle are, quote, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this to you, unquote, Philippians 3.15. Does he not sufficiently intimate that a difference of opinion as to these matters which are not absolutely necessary ought not to be a ground of dissension among Christians? The best thing indeed is to be perfectly agreed, but seeing there is no man who is not involved in some mist of ignorance, we must either have no church at all, or pardon delusion in those things of which one may be ignorant without violating the substance of religion and forfeiting salvation. Here, however, I have no wish to patronize even the minutest errors, as if I thought it right to foster them by flattery or connivance. What I say is that we are not on account of every minute difference to abandon a church, provided it retains sound and unimpaired that doctrine in which the safety of piety consists, and keep the use of the sacraments instituted by the Lord. Meanwhile, if we strive to reform what is offensive, we act in the discharge of duty. 
To this effect are the words of Paul, quote, If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 14.30 From this it is evident that to each member of the church, according to his measure of grace, the study of public edification has been assigned, provided it be done decently and in order. In other words, we must neither renounce the communion of the church, nor, continuing in it, disturb peace and discipline when duly arranged. 13. Our indulgence ought to extend much farther in tolerating imperfection of conduct. Here there is great danger of falling, and Satan employs all his machinations to ensnare us. For there always have been persons who, imbued with a false persuasion of absolute holiness, as if they had already become a kind of aerial spirits, spurn the society of all in whom they see that something human still remains. Such of old were the Cathari and the Donatists, who were similarly infatuated. Such in the present day are some of the Anabaptists, who would be thought to have made superior progress. Others again sin in this respect, not so much from that insane pride, as from inconsiderate zeal, seeing that among those to whom the gospel is preached, the fruit produced is not in accordance with the doctrine, they forthwith conclude that there no church exists. The offence, indeed, is well founded, and it is one to which in this most unhappy age we give far too much occasion. It is impossible to excuse our accursed sluggishness which the Lord will not leave unpunished, as he is already beginning sharply to chastise us. Woe then to us, who by our dissolute license of wickedness cause weak consciences to be wounded. Still those of whom we have spoken sin in their turn by not knowing how to set bounds to their offence. For where the Lord requires mercy, they omit it and give themselves up to immoderate severity thinking there is no church where there is not complete purity and integrity of conduct, they, through hatred of wickedness, withdraw from a genuine church, while they think they are shunning the company of the ungodly. They allege that the church of God is holy, but that they may at the same time understand that it contains a mixture of good and bad. Let them hear from the lips of our Saviour that parable in which he compares the church to a net, in which all kinds of fishes are taken, but not separated, until they are brought ashore. Let them hear it compared to a field, which planted with good seed is by the fraud of an enemy mingled with tares, and is not freed of them until the harvest is brought into the barn. Let them hear, in fine, that it is a thrashing floor, in which the collected wheat lies concealed under the chaff, until cleansed by the fanners and the sieve, it is at length laid up in the granary. If the Lord declares that the church will labour under the defect of being burdened with a multitude of wicked until the day of judgment, it is in vain to look for a church altogether free from blemish. Matthew 13. 14. They exclaim that it is impossible to tolerate the vice which everywhere stalks abroad like a pestilence. What if the Apostle's sentiment applies here also? 
Among the Corinthians it was not a few that erred, but almost the whole body had become tainted. There was not one species of sin merely, but a multitude, and those not trivial errors, but some of them execrable crimes. There was not only corruption in manners, but also in doctrine. What course was taken by the holy apostle, in other words, by the organ of the heavenly spirit, by whose testimony the church stands and falls? Does he seek separation from them? Does he discard them from the kingdom of Christ? Does he strike them with the thunder of a final anathema? He not only does none of these things, but he acknowledges and heralds them as a church of Christ and a society of saints. If the church remains among the Corinthians, where envyings, divisions, and contentions rage, where quarrels, lawsuits, and avarice prevail, where a crime, which even the Gentiles would execrate, is openly approved, where the name of Paul, whom they ought to have honoured as a father, is petulantly assailed, where some hold the resurrection of the dead in derision, though with it the whole gospel must fall, where the gifts of God are made subservient to ambition, not to charity, where many things are done neither decently nor in order, if there the church still remains, simply because the ministration of word and sacrament is not rejected, who will presume to deny the title of church to those to whom a tenth part of these crimes cannot be imputed? How, I ask, would those who act so morosely against the present churches have acted to the Galatians, who had done all but abandon the gospel, Galatians 1.6, and yet among them the same apostle found churches? 15. They also object that Paul sharply rebukes the Corinthians for permitting an heinous offender in their communion and then lays down a general sentence by which he declares it unlawful even to eat bread with a man of impure life. 1 Corinthians 5, 11, 12. Here they exclaim, If it is not lawful to eat ordinary bread, how can it be lawful to eat the Lord's bread? I admit that it is a great disgrace if dogs and swine are admitted among the children of God. Much more, if the sacred body of Christ is prostituted to them. And indeed, when churches are well regulated, they will not bear the wicked in their bosom, nor will they admit the worthy and unworthy indiscriminately to that sacred feast. But because pastors are not always sedulously vigilant, are sometimes also more indulgent than they ought, or are prevented from acting so strictly as they could wish, the consequence is that even the openly wicked are not always excluded from the fellowship of the saints. This I admit to be a vice, and I have no wish to extenuate it, seeing that Paul sharply rebukes it in the Corinthians. But although the church fail in her duty, it does not therefore follow that every private individual is to decide the question of separation for himself. I deny not that it is the duty of a pious man to withdraw from all private intercourse with the wicked, and not entangle himself with them by any voluntary tie. But it is one thing to shun the society of the wicked, and another to renounce the communion of the church through hatred of them. Those who think it sacrilege to partake the Lord's bread with the wicked 
are in this more rigid than Paul. For when he exhorts us to pure and holy communion, he does not require that we should examine others, or that everyone should examine the whole church, but that each should examine himself. 1 Corinthians 11, 28-29 If it were unlawful to communicate with the unworthy, Paul would certainly have ordered us to take heed that there were no individual in the whole body by whose impurity we might be defiled. But now that he only requires each to examine himself, he shows that it does no harm to us, though some who are unworthy present themselves along with us. To the same effect he afterwards adds, quote, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Unquote. He says, not to others, but to himself, and justly, for the right of admitting or excluding ought not to be left to the decision of individuals. Cognizance of this point, which cannot be exercised without due order, as shall afterwards be more fully shown, belongs to the whole church. It would therefore be unjust to hold any private individual as polluted by the unworthiness of another, whom he neither can nor ought to keep back from communion. End of section 3